Looking for new threads? Well, we've got you covered at the Music Is Live podcast official merch store over at tpublic.com. Whether it's t-shirts, baseball tees, hoodies, coffee mugs, travel mugs, phone cases, or onesies for your infant rockers and metalheads, you can find everything you're looking for over at the Music Is Live podcast merch store at tpublic. Go to my link tree at l-i-n-k-a-t-r dot e-e forward slash Music Is Live podcast and get your merch today. Buy my stuff and thanks for your support. TerraNut is proud to offer you a natural nut bar chock full of healthy fats, minerals, and protein that meet your demands. Go to their website, www.terranut.com. You can order from them directly, and they will ship it to you. Use my coupon code, LUMAVS, and you will get a 25% discount on your first order. TerraNut Superfood Snacks, www.terranut.com. Don't forget to use coupon code, LUMAVS, at checkout. Fuel your life. You're listening to the Music Is Life podcast with your host, Lou Mabs, on the Rat Sound Review Network. Hello and welcome to the Music Is Life podcast. This is your host, Lou Mabs. Thank you for either watching it on the Music Is Life podcast channel on YouTube or listening to it on all available streaming media platforms. This is part two of my interview with George Fullen, General George, formerly of General Studios. In this episode, we get more in depth about his time working at Pi Studios, producing some big name artists, the pros and the cons, and the ups and the downs, a lot of that stuff. Once again, this was a three hour conversation that I had with George. Learned a lot about his experience and at the same time, learned a lot about what was going on in his life that I had no idea. It was pretty introspective. It means a lot to me that George was this transparent about his history. One of the best subject matter experts when it comes to engineering and production that a lot of people can learn a lot from. Thanks for watching part one, now on to part two. What was it that actually got you into the whole aspect of being a production engineer, uh, being an audio engineer? like? just being in the scene as long as you were and just getting involved with it or was it school you know what what was it so, in general so i was booking shows and then uh a friend of mine his name is tyler king he booked a lot of shows and then and was the wait i'm sorry did you say his name was tiger king tyler king oh tyler king okay tyler, oh it's funny tiger king i never thought of that tyler king <laughs> and 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 he booked a ton of shows you know great shows on long island and then in the city, and he was the main booker at CB's for years, like all through the 90s uh, or late late 90s, early 2000s. And he would book some Sunday matinees, but it, it wasn't every weekend like it was back then, like in the heyday of New York hardcore. Um, so, but, but, you know, he told me, you're too nice to book shows. You have to be a little bit of an asshole. I was always like, fuck, he's right. <laughs> um. I'd probably would have, would have let some people walk all over me, club owners or, v, you know, like, you know, VFW halls or, you know, bands or whatever. So I, so I wasn't good at that. And then I started singing for Clockwise and I was like, you know, re- went and recorded at this, this studio in the city and heard my voice and was like, I am not a good singer. I shouldn't be doing this. Um, but, oh, but I knew I wanted music to be my life. And I really paid attention when Clockwise recorded and was like, this is cool. What does this do? The guy explained what a mic pre was and EQ is an old MCI console, which I remembered later on in life. And uh, it was to tape. And it was like, you know, I sat there the whole time and he recorded everything. And then it was time for me to sing. And I, you know, the, just the whole presence of being in the studio. And then, and then I, and then I spent some time with this band called Big Sniff when they went to record. Cause, cause after that, it was like anytime someone wanted to, anytime I heard someone was recording, I was like, can I come? Can I hang out? Can I, you know, can I, can I, can I be there? And I went upstate to this, this place called Sweetfish, which was a studio in Argyle, New York. I remember Argyle, New York, because I got a ticket that ended up suspending my license about six years later. Oh, jeez! I never take care of anything on myself. So, um, (laughs) so, so I had to drive back to Argyle, New York and, and, you know, wait for the court to open and pay this ticket to unsuspend my license. But, uh, so this guy Reese, who owned Sweetfish, I was hanging out with him. He's a studio owner. Big Sniff was recording. 
and I was telling him I was interested in recording. And he was like, why don't you go to school for it? And at that point, I had no idea that you can go to school to become a recording engineer. So then I started researching schools. And that was like, you research school by like looking at the back of magazines. You didn't Google how to become a recording engineer. You, mm-hmm. you went to the library and looked up recording schools and talked to people. And, you know, uh, I started to apply around. But, but my, I, was, I was really good at school, but I was very bored with school. So like, my grades weren't good to get scholarships or anything and, I was, and we were poor <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, a friend of mine brian smith who's the drummer from loyal to none was like i was talking to him at a show about it and he was like i go to nassau community college for recording they just started a recording program i'm in the first year of it so i was like oh how do i get in touch with this and he said get you know uh, go to this office ask for this program they're gonna have you sign up for it and then um, you have to pass a, a entrance interview because there's only spot for 25 people. And he goes, you know, and, and I know that 60 people have already applied for it. It's like, fuck. Rush did the whole thing, was trying to get in the second year of the program, met with the professor who's doing this. His name was Kevin Kelly. And uh, Kevin Kelly said, I, I don't want to let you in because your grades suck. But Brian Smith is my best student, and he said you're a good guy. <laughs> so I was like, "It's right. not what you know; it's who you know." <laughs> it's who you know. So I got in. I was on the dean's list two two semesters in a row because I loved it so much. And me and Kevin Kelly actually became pretty decent friends through that process of learning. Going, you know, he was my professor, and like I learned about recording. And then Brian Smith was like, "Hey, I know you're not ready to intern yet because the the year wasn't over." but I'm leaving this place called Pi Studios. It's a vintage studio in Glen Cove and uh, you should apply for internship there. And I was like, thanks, Brian Smith called up Pi Studios and said, Brian said, you're looking for an intern. I would like to be your intern. So I you know, come in an interview. I went there and interviewed. During my internship interview at Pi Studios, this guy walked in and said, hey, I'm Perry. I'm the owner. The studio manager was interviewing me. And after about 20 minutes talking to the studio manager, they were like, yeah, you seem all right. I don't know if you're ready to intern, but uh, Brian Smith says you're a good guy. Oh, my so we'll, uh, we're, we'll We'll think about it. And then the owner of the studio came in, this guy named Perry came in and gave me a toilet brush and said, if you, if you, if you clean my bathroom, I'll give you an internship. <laughs> so I went in and I cleaned his bathroom for an hour and I came out and he walked in. He goes, that's the cleanest I've ever seen. My bathroom he goes when do you want to start and i was like i'll start tomorrow and the next day I, I, I was interning at pi and then within within a month i was their assistant so i was assisting records and then within two years i was chief engineer of pi studios which was maybe one of the nicest studios on the east coast i've recorded there with you it was a beautiful studio yeah we did piano right we did five tracks with live 88 key piano yeah. In that studio, if I could tell the story real quick, I don't think it's going to get you in trouble. I remember we booked the same day as Alicia Keys. Yeah, We were on a time constraint. I think we had three or four hours. And one of those hours consisted of the piano being tuned. Yeah. So you told Aaron pretty much, okay, go in there, record the best you could in one take each song, yeah. and we'll see how it sounds. And that's exactly what we did. We were able to get all five tracks on one take each and you're like it's perfect yeah and then we well, had to I leave think, because i think, we got, I think because in. of that yeah i think because of the alicia keys push we got like a really big hookup <laughs> i think he did like he's like give me 100 bucks you're good because he felt so bad that 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 aaron got pushed out yeah but you know he was cool about it and i think i remember and perry was just like you know anytime you guys want to come back let me know yeah you know that was really cool unfortunately we haven't been back since then but (laughs) well it's gone i decommissioned it two two decembers ago what yeah i took a week off work and me and perry decommissioned it one of the best rooms it wasn't doing anything he built a he built a room in la and it's a thousand times better so he's in la right now then okay Uh, william whitman and perry margoloff are are father figures to me they, mm-hmm. they hate that i said that because that makes them so much older than me but <laughs> i call them mentors you know like you have mentors through your life and uh, i feel like those two influenced me mm-hmm. beyond belief just just intelligent super intelligent men and ve- very nice guy and he was very yeah. complimentary towards aaron by the way perry if i ever come into la 
rain check. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I started at Pi. It was this weird thing where like I was 20 and I asked my mom like, hey, um, can I quit my job? And like, can you cover my car insurance for a couple of months while I intern? What were you and doing at the time? I was a security guard through school because like I could, I could just, you know, study and do all that stuff while in school. Like, I, you know, I was like watching a parking lot in, in Mineola or something. Actually, I know exactly where I was, but there's but, plenty um, of parking lots in Mineola that have security. I know. So I was, you know, I'd sit there in like one weekend day and like two week weekdays and it just worked at school. Um, so I did that. And then, and then, so I started interning and I was like, Hey, can I quit my job and just go into the studio full time? She's like, yeah, I'll cover you, you know, insurance, 40 bucks a month or something like that. So, uh, so it was a free internship, but I spent, I was there and, and, and I remember, you know, I was there for when they turned the key in the morning and I was there for when they turned the key at night. And, and, you know, a basic in the old days, a basic day in the studio was 12 hours. If the client was booked in at noon, that means you had to be there at 11 a.m. And if the client left at midnight, that means you cleaned up and vacuumed and did all that stuff, turned off the two mics and, you know, you know, whatever kind of little maintenance things you did. And I was leave at one. So when I was an intern, I was working from 11 a.m. to one whenever there was a session. When I worked with you, it was uh, Pro Tools that we used. When you did this internship, was it real to real at the time? It was real to real, yeah. Mm. 24 track, two inch. He had two Studio 800s that I recapped, recapped everything in the room, recapped mm. the console. Replacing capacitors, <laughs> if anyone doesn't know what recapping is. The third day I was interning there, and I still remember this as like a really, really important moment, was like one of the assistants he had, John, was like, hey, that second PCM42 was making noise when we tried to use it. And Perry was like, all right, uh, take it out, put it on the rack. And I was like, what? And he just like took it out of the rack, brought it upstairs. Perry opened it up, looked at it, found a burnt out resistor, undid the resistor, found another resistor, the same value, put it in, soldered it together, put it in. And then we sat and tested and listened to it. It wasn't noisy anymore. And I was like, that's fucked up. <laughs> I was like, I never realized that you could just do that. And that was like the way of that studio was like, oh, if something broke. We moved on to the next version of it. And then I would write a report at night. And then when the clients left, I would go and take it apart and fix it. And that was such a normal part of that, of that, of that world where like, I think some of that is missed. Now it's like, oh, I'd send it to the shop to get fixed or buy another one because everything's disposable now. Mm -hmm. But it kind of really, really taught me like how to treat gear and how to wire and like, why be afraid of taking something apart? Someone put it together. Someone built it. Right now I own about four guitars myself and I do bring my stuff over to all music in Plainview because I trust Guy Brogna and his team. I mean, they've taken care of my stuff, my four guitars and my bass. And, you know, they always take care of my wife when she's got to buy stuff for, for school. Guy has always been very helpful when it comes to certain things about maintaining your instruments. Yeah. And he says, you know, one thing you want to do is invest in a soldering iron. And, you know, there are a couple of times where my Strat, because I do have a, have, a, have a modified Fender Mexican Strat where I replaced the single coil in the bridge with a DiMarzio Super Distortion humbucker pickup just because I like the tone of a humbucker and a Strat more than the single coil. So, you know, there was a part where it, it, was, it was cutting out, just opened it up, saw that it just needed some soldering, boom, 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 put it back together again, yeah. good as new. As I've gotten older... I'm more about having fewer instruments that I can take care of and just focusing on getting the best that I can out of those. I just make sure that I take care of my stuff. I hate it when they mistreat instruments and they're like, oh, it's crapped out on me. Well, you probably bang it around a lot. And yeah. to me, it's, 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 it's always just been more important to know your craft and know your instrument rather than just be show-offy. And unfortunately, yeah. there's still too many people that are like that. When there's no reason I mean, to be. Yeah. I mean, that's also like one of my philosophies in the studio is, is having good sounding stuff before you get to the microphone. My studio, you know, when you were there, I had an AC30, I had a high watt, I had a Marshall, I, you know, I had tons of stuff. And then I had, a, you know, a couple of really nicely set up guitars and all that stuff that, um, that anyone can play. And, and my whole theory was like, you know, these bands are coming off the road um their stuff is beat up 
here's something nice to play. Here, you know, here, here's like a special event, like you're, you're in the studio recording. Let's get your sound and then let me see if I can beat it. Or let's get your sound, let me see if I could add to it. You always have the best selection of two amps in your uh, studio. And I always, I remember that high watt. I recorded uh, Beneath you the Curve with that high. I did. Oh, that, I was just like, I could put a bass through a guitar amp and you said yes. <laughs> I don't, yeah, that was one of Whitman's high watts. So when I closed my studio, I gave it back to him. I have a good sounding B15 in my basement, which I do bass through, which actually mm -hmm. now it's funny. Everyone does bass DI. So like now I reamp the B15 because that's the proper bass amp. Oh yeah, I, I'm sure you know that Tech 21, they have DI boxes for bass. For, for my ears, for some reason, I need a moving speaker and I need a microphone. It just never sounds, it always sounds 2D. It's like, I can't grab it. It's like a weird, it's like a weird thing. And you know, who knows if I'm right or wrong. It's just my taste my you know aesthetic but. no I, whatever works for the individual i guess you know i yeah. mean it's funny because i i remember back in my touring days you know i i had the half stack i had the crate blue voodoo 120 watt tube and whatever cabinet i could get my hands on and that was my live rig then my live rig now if it was a smaller venue it was a marshall 30 watt solid state amp that i just put the mic on and ran it through the pa and it mm -hmm. gave me the loudness that I wanted. Yeah. And my primary amp is actually right next to me. It's a Blackstar Tube HT Soloist 60. Before when I was looking for as many, as many watts as I could, now I'm just like, well, you know, I'm not playing the garden. And yeah. I think it's just important for me to play something compact, but something that has a quality sound. What's your take on that? Like, I mean, I know you say you, and I agree with you because it's nice to have tone coming through an amp, but knowing what we know now, especially about live performances, because some people still want the half stack. Do you think it's even necessary anymore? Yes and no. If you're playing clubs like the downtown and, and whatever, it's like, I feel like a four by 12 and a hundred watt amp, you need it. Because you don't know what kind of PA support you're going to get. You don't know the front of house. You like you should somewhat have a somewhat loud stage. All front of house guys are mad at me right now. Get say over it. <laughs> yeah, I I always say you should have an eighteen or a fifteen inch speaker for bass. I don't fucking care about what your four ten or your eight ten cabinet is uh, voiced at. I just think having a large speaker for bass is important. That may be a little bit old school, but when I, we were playing in three years older, like my bass player didn't agree with me. And I went out and bought an Ampeg 15, one for the studio, but two to play live with, with three years older. And we started playing live with it. And he goes, fuck. I just felt like I needed that bottom end on stage for when I was singing. Because mm -hmm. I mostly sing to the bass. It's just the, the way, because I was a bass player. So like, it's mostly where my vocal lines come from. It's like, you know, good bass lines kind of. I just always think it's important to have that. But, it, you know, and, and a four by 12 is great. But like, if you're playing arenas and you're playing with in-ears, who the fuck cares what you have on stage? Like, but there should be an amp somewhere that may be a little bit isolated that someone's playing some good sound. I mean, in the studio, like I kind of hate any amp that's over 50 watts because I don't can't turn it up because I'm gonna blow up the mics or whatever. Or in my pre's, like it's a pain in the ass to have a loud amp in the studio. So, like, you know, I have, I mean, I'm sitting in front of like a hundred watt orange right now, but you know, a 30 watt AC30, a five watt. Epiphone Valve Junior, which I love to record with. Um, I, you know, I got a, a TH, THD Flexi 50, which is like a little bit of a takeoff of a Marshall, but also then more. Um, and that goes down to 20 watts and you can really kind of crank that 20 watts to get, to get, a, to get a microphone on a speaker. But mm -hmm. like, I very, very rarely record guitar direct. I won't even take a direct channel as like, maybe I'll change it in the mix. It's like, I'll only record direct if I'm going for a certain sound where I need a direct, you know, I'm trying to do a weird delay effect that I need in the box. I'll record a guitar delect to get the weird delay effect, but like, I'm not putting amp plugins on that guitar. It's like, I want that sound. Because it, it, to, to roll back to learning how to record the tape, I come from a world of like, every great engineer I worked with, on the good records I worked on, 
they would say, when you push the fader up, two weeks from now, you want your sound that you want in the mix on that fader. Mm-hmm. And, you, and, and that forces you to make a decision at the time. So like, you know, we were at Pi and someone's like, oh, I want to play a lead. What do you got? And I'd be like, oh, there's a really good Fender Twin. Let me set it up. And that twin would kind of influence them to play the lead. And then, you know, either I was engineering or another engineer would like, oh, I want, you know, the Neve mic because there's a Neve there through an LA two way. And it would, that would record to channel 14 or whatever. And like any time weeks from then, or when it went to mixing, they'd push up that fade. They would go, oh, fuck, that twin sounds so good. And because that influenced other stuff in the song. So to me, like one of the things that Pro Tools engineers do is they record a direct guitar, they record a clean version of it, they record a dirty version of it, and then it just prolongs the decision until you mix. And to me, that's never good because then you, it, it's like, what could a great guitar solo sound influence the singer to sing the next day? Or what could a great rhythm guitar sound influence a horn section or a string section or like a tambourine but like it's 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 all like the building the tracks you should really get it as close to mix ready as possible when the mic goes on the amp to me i always hate like oh we'll take care of that in the mix or we'll hey you know we'll do that stuff it's like some stuff you have to do in the modern world because like we're, we're competing with records in the pro tools world so everything's slammed so like if you record a drummer and it's kind of like shit his consistency and hits isn't that great it's like, I know I'm putting a sample under and I'm pushing it to the top. So every fucking hit, it sounds like he's fucking mad at that snare drum. That's being competitive. But like with guitar tone and bass tone and even vocal tone or like, you know, percussion and all that stuff, it's like, it should really be as close to the final product. I, I really like the moment of building up a record. It's, it's my favorite part of making a record is, is getting the tone and working each song. Like, you know, I, I'm at the point now where I'll put a mic up I got the pre up. I got a little compression on it. The guitar player will start playing the song, play your part. And then I'll walk over and tweak the amp to the way I want it to sound like three weeks from now when I'm going to mix. And they're always like, you know, I, I, some of the guitars I've been recording lately, it's like, fuck, I know I fuck up when George walks over and starts turning the amp knobs. <laughs> like, I know it's not a take when he starts fucking around. <laughs> kind of harkens me back to the, some of the stuff from the 60s and 70s and even, you know, early 80s, I'll say to an extent like a lot of those warm sounds that came from from the amps that the musicians were using in the studio. I've really been listening to like a lot of fusion records from the 70s and mostly Alan Holdsworth. And I know that in our yeah. conversation outside of this, I've, I was talking about my love for Holdsworth and I, I talk about him on the podcast as much as I can because I think he's one of the most underappreciated guitarists. That When I listen to that stuff and I'm hearing the sounds that he got, and to think, you know, the the perfect timing that the musicians that he was playing with, I think it was Tony Williams, I think it was the drummer that he was playing with at one point, you know, guys like him, guys like Gary Husband, guys like Chad Wackerman, they didn't need a click track. It was they went in there, they knew yeah. their they knew their skill, they knew their craft, they knew their instrument, and they just went in and they got the best sounds with what they had, and they released some great products because they took the time to really say we can do this better but let's work it out before we go into the studio and then you know jazz musicians they're always on a set a set budget because it's not one of the lucrative genres out there but you know they went in they did their thing maybe a week maybe two weeks and then boom they released a great product and you listen to some of the stuff from weather report you listen to some of the stuff from iou and it's just like Oh my God, how good it sounds. And it's just like, I think you would have thrived in an environment like that. It's one of those things where, and I've had other engineers and, and other producers stuff like, man, you're fucking 10 years too late. <laughs> you know, like when you started, like you saw the heyday. And I tell the story all the time. Like the first session I was an assistant engineer on, there was a band from New Jersey called Love in Reverse. And Heard of them? Like, like 1994, 95 or something like that. So, and they were in the studio for three months. 12 weeks or a little bit of pre-production actually tracking overdubbing and mixing all done at pi over 12 weeks it was like a two-week break before mixing and the album sold 1500 copies it was on sire records 1500 copies total 1500 copies total and it was like oh yeah that sucked (laughs) and it was like yeah okay 
and then you know they might have done another record or they you know did a video i've made records for fifteen hundred dollars <laughs> that have sold twenty thousand copies you know it's like that's that's the reality that we live in it's like the, the music industry was so crazy back then there's just so much money that people just made mistakes the 2000s came and napster happened and, and they really kind of saw the writing on the wall they got rid of everyone and and you know you know instead of having 50 artists and three hit making artists that pay for everyone you have you know seven artists and five of those artists are making hits and they're hardly paying for themselves. I remember one of my internships when I was in college was for a record label. I got to intern at NG Records, which ended up becoming Artemis Records. Yeah. At, at the time, 09 was on the label. They had just signed Kitty. So this was the summer right before their album Spit dropped, right before they got the OzFest 2000 tour. And I learned a lot from working there where I was able to learn how to make press kits I learned mm -hmm. how to make calls and speak with radio stations about getting ads yeah. and things like that. So, you know, I kind of learned how to talk to people. Hey, and director there. Oh, Marjorie. Hey, this is Lou from blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. Like that. And I, I got to thank uh, Tom Smitty Smith because he was um, the, the gentleman that I interned for. I learned a lot working for him. I'm not going to lie. You know, the wheels in my brains were thinking, you know, I can learn this stuff so that when I have a band, I can get signed. And then, like you said, the next year, Napster hit and completely changed the game. Yeah. And I, I do think their reaction initially was was poor. But then that was the rise of indies because being an up-and-coming engineer in the late 90s, I would meet the interns at the record labels. I would meet, you know, the, the A&R assistants and stuff. And then you cultivate those relationships because those A&R people would get you work. Like there was tons of times where I'm like, hey, I just signed this band. I want you to demo them. And he was like, all right, cool. But then like, you know, 1999, I had several of those people. We would talk, we'd see each other at different things, like, you know, the different festivals. We'd schmooze and, you know, I'd help them with, you know, like, oh, get these speakers for your office. You know, I would do different, you know, I was like helpful to them. Mm -hmm. And they were like good friends. Like some of them were good friends. And then, and then literally they were all gone. Yeah. It's like 2001, they all got fired. They laid off like 2,500 people in the music industry in New York in 2001. My late yeah. brother was actually the head of HR for the IT department at Universal Records. So I know that was an unfortunate time. I think the last A&R guy that I dealt with was Mike Gitter over at Roadrunner Records. He had just signed Killswitch Engage from Ferret. I think it's safe to admit that Slipknot was the band that brought Roadrunner to the forefront, it feels like Killswitch Engage, they took it to the streets because at, at yeah. that point, 2002, 2003, Killswitch was the band that everybody was talking about. Yeah, but I think but I think Roadrunner had a deal with like Atlantic or Atlantic's like distro or something like that. And then that fell through for them. They they were through Universal at one point Universal. and yeah. then it switched over it was to like Universal uh, Atlantic. Atlantic. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. Universal and Atlantic merged or something. It's, it's I used to know all this shit. It's like such a fucking waste of space now in my brain <laughs> at the time roadrunner you know they, they had bands that i didn't care for with the exception of like fear factory and and typo they had cold chamber that i was just not a fan of and mm. that was at the time that new metal was was very popular and roadrunner did have some good bands though right before cold chamber exploded they had uh, both worlds which is john joseph from the chrome yeah. they had that yeah. that was great they had signed vision of disorder they had signed earth crisis and Sepultura at the time was releasing against their first album with Derek. So it was great to see the hardcore element of what yeah. they call loud rock. That, what was Orange Nine on? Who was Orange Nine on? Didn't Orange Nine Millimeter. Well, I know they started on Revelation. Then they went to Atlantic. Yeah. And then they went to NG, Artemis. NG. Yeah, 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 that's right. That, that's where I entered. That's where I met Shaka. Actually, I just messaged him on Instagram and he was just like, oh, Lou, I remember you. And, you know, and funny enough, he went to high school with my brother who passed away. And he was just like, how's Mike doing? And I'm like, ah, oh, dude, Mike uh, passed away five years ago. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I told him I'm good now. I texted him a picture of my daughter. She's like, oh, she's beautiful. God bless. And, you know, nice. it, was, it was just great. You know, it was nice to see that Shaka what you know it's still a grounded guy you know and, and yeah you run into people who were in the hardcore scene around the time that you were part of it i want to say the time that i was part of it i mean because a lot of those guys were fickle anyways you know I'm, I'm grateful to say that i'm boys with tyler and will from cripple dern who 
at the time when I was doing gigs, they were in a band called uh, Your Day Strong. And mm-hmm. then Tyler ended up joining My Bitter End and then Dr. Acula. I'm really, really happy with what Crippled Earn is releasing. I mean, it's like old school punk influenced hardcore. And Oh, I got to check it out. I'm yeah. Not familiar. And there's no pretensions about what they're doing. They're just like, yeah, we're not looking to make a million bucks. We, you know, we we're weekend warriors. You know, they have families. They work full time during the week yeah. and they were out doing shows on the East coast on weekends and, you know, doing their thing. And I'm just like, wow, you know, that that's great. There's no yeah. pressure to try to be something yeah. that they're not, but that's yeah, everyone, it's everyone I know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it, it's just, it's just crazy how topsy turvy the music industry became because of Napster. And I agree with you. I think that the end result of what happened is I think the most unfortunate circumstance because it's still the label that's making money from it as opposed to the artist. And yeah. it, it kind of sickens me that up until now, we were living in a time where for, for artists to recoup their losses, they were doing like $1,000 meet and greets before the shows yeah. and things well, like that. And concert tickets are just so yeah. fucking expensive now. It's ridiculous. Well, I don't think anyone's making money. I mean, if you're not a touring band, I don't care if you sell 100,000 records. I just don't think there's any money. I, I think it's one of those things where it's like people just expect it for free. If People I could, just expect music to be free. If you if you could be honest with me, do you think we're at a point where musicians should never quit their day job if they want to do what they want to do? It depends what their day job is. <laughs> like I don't, you know, it's like I I don't. It, 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 I mean, anything like I'm in the mindset of like it takes hard work to do anything, mm-hmm. right? To to be successful in anything, it takes hard work. Like um, where I am in my industry, I feel like I'm successful and it took a lot of hard work and it's like, not like the hard work goes away. You know, my day job, it's, it's, you know, I'm working hard. I'm, you know, I, I mostly deal with baseball streaming and spring training started today. And like, I'm looking at, you know, probably 60 hour weeks where I'm also then on 24 hours a day and need to fix problems, you know, for the next seven months. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's my next seven months is I'm just going to be working. Um, and that mindset is, is, I think has got me where I am in my industry is that I don't like it's 40 hours doesn't make sense to me in anything I've ever done. 40 hours a week doesn't, there's not enough time to do anything. No, um, I agree. I, you, I you always feel like the biggest really problem. Hard. So like, so like if you're a band and you're, you know, the, the only thing with like, the only thing with it, it, the music industry is fickle. It's like, you, you could be the best guitarist in the world. And, uh, and you know, and, and, and if you don't have good taste in your songwriting or get with someone who's good, no one's going to ever li- hear you because it's just not going to get popular. Mm-hmm. So like, the, who knows what the, I don't think anyone knows what the equation is. You know, like we, we talked in the past about like Baby Shark and like how the popularity of that song but we also said like that song was everywhere for a whole summer and how much money did they really make from the actual song? It's like nothing. They didn't, you know, they're probably making everything on merchandise or whatever they had set up. Um, will, yeah. will that, will that family who came up with that song come up with another hit? I don't know, <laughs> but like, it, but like, is that the music industry? It's I mean, the I'm biggest one hit wonder using, single. <laughs> I know I'm using it as an, as an, you know, I'm using it as an extreme example, but like, I mean, like to go to go back to like some of the earlier stuff we were saying. Like, I think if you take the fantasy out of music and your career, um, I I always say that that's an important step in 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 just being a musician because you know a hundred years ago if you could play a mandolin or an or an acoustic guitar or like a little snare drum and you sat on your porch and you played some music for your family and friends every other Sunday and you all sang together. I mean, that was an amazing thing. That was a great time that like could be passed down through generations. Mm-hmm. Why is that not still good enough? Why is getting on a stage in front of a fucking $100,000 PA in front of 20,000 people the, the height of what people want? Like to me, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I'd rather just be playing songs and music for my friends and family. Like I want to be better at guitar so I can play songs for my sons. 
but that's my mindset. Like, and, and I've, and I've shared that with people in the past. And I'm like, you know, like, like who, who cares about the fantasy of being famous? That's only 60 years old. That's only from Elvis. People going I, crazy in the street for you. I have to be honest. Um, I, I'm of the same mindset as you. I admit I thought differently back then. And, and I think that's because of the environment that I was in with people who heard what they heard on records that were released by Vagrant or Drive Through, And they're like, that's what I want to do. And yeah. we have to do exactly everything as they do so we can get to that point. And I'm just like, why don't we just have fun? Yeah. Because um, to me, it's like, if if I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, and I've always been this way, if I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I remember thinking to myself, I said, you know what? In 2003, I said this, as cool as it would be to be on a major label, because at the time I didn't realize that all a major label was, was just a big loan that they would yeah. give you, but you'd have to pay that back plus interest. Yeah. And that's not just indie labels, but that's major labels as well. It's everyone, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was thinking, you know, it would be cool to be the first band to release this stuff independently. And at the time, iTunes was a thing. And if you were an independent artist, you could release your stuff on iTunes. You still and can. Yes, you can. I buy, I, the, you know what? I buy tons of stuff on iTunes because it's the it's the best money breakdown. Besides like Bandcamp Fridays and all that stuff. Like that. Mm -hmm. I said this in 2003 that we don't have to sign to a label. We could just do everything independently and just reap the benefits. And I'd, I'd rather do it that way. And I remember my bass player thought I was crazy at the time. He was just like, oh, no, no, we're, we're never going to get this. And he was the one that was pushing us to sound like Finch or like Census Fail or yeah. this and that. And I'm just like, dude, I don't write like that. You know, I mean, like, if I can think of everything that's ever influenced me growing up, you know, I could say that I'm as influenced by Black Sabbath as I am influenced by Minor Threat, as I am influenced by Fishbone, as I am influenced by Gordon fucking Lightfoot. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like to me, it's like, I've always said there's two kinds of music. There's good music and there's music you don't like. If I'm going to block out everything that's good because it doesn't follow one specific genre then I'm doing more of an injustice to myself as, as a musician or as a music writer yeah. than anything. I feel, I feel like that's, that's more damaging. I think it's good to be influenced by different forms of art, whether it's yes. literature, whether it's audible or, or visual, anything, you know? So, and it, and it just got to a point where I just said, you know what? I don't think I have it, what it takes to be one of these rock stars that's on a label. And I don't care if I ever do, because if I'm not writing music for myself, what am I doing it for? You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very easy for me to just like, you know, write, you know, like my girlfriend broke up with me and this and that type stuff. And I'm just like, but I don't want to do that. You know, but I, yeah. you know, and making a million bucks from it was never the reason why I did it for the first place. Several great points you made there, but, but there is good music out there that I don't like. And, you know, and then there's Kiss. Which I don't <laughs> like, and is not good music. Yeah, Gene Simmons. No, um, but and, that's and their music never got me laid anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think music ever got me laid, <laughs> but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't playing music to get me laid or whatever. I just, I don't even know why I started singing for Clockwise. You know why I started singing for Clockwise? Because I could book shows, mm. and I was popular, and Ed wanted good shows. So he's like, yeah, you sing for clockwise. And it was like, it made sense for him. And I think it's like any hardcore singer starts singing, like, mm -hmm. you know. And then I started loving it, you know. I, I wasn't like obsessed with it. And, you know, I definitely lived without it for years. And then, you know, I was in another band three years older, which was which was sort of a little bit more of like an experiment. All of three years older songs are standard song structure. You know, when I first heard three years older, it reminded me of of Bane a little bit, like it had that it had that hookiness, it had that melody, and it was heavy at times, like you know. Yeah, and I enjoyed the hell out of that <clears throat> album, and I really loved your cover of "Time After Time." That was beautiful. <laughs> that could be a story. Um, so we covered "Time After Time" because 
William Whitman, who agreed to record the Three Years Older record, who was a good friend of mine, recorded She's So Unusual. He was the engineer and sort of, you know, helped produce that record, Cindy Lauper's first big record. We were going to track the drums at a studio outside Philly at the guy who wrote Time After Time with Cindy Lauper, this guy, uh, Rob. Wait a minute, is that, that's not one of the members of the Hooters, is it? It is the guy from the Hooters. So oh, like, my God. I worked very closely with as an assistant engineer and did some engineering for this little production team. This guy, Rick Chertoff, who's a producer, William Whitman, who's an engineer, and Rob Hyman had like a little kind of songwriting production crew. And they would do a lot of stuff at Pi because, because Whitman really loved the console at Pi. So the early, early on, some of the early records I assisted on were Whitman, Chertoff, and Hyman making music for all different kinds of stuff. They actually made a really, really awesome record called Largo, which is hard to find, but like that might be up your alley, that record. It's mm -hmm. like, it, it's just a fucking great record. I listen now, to it all the time still. Now, is that um, the same team that did One of Us from Joan Osborne? Pretty much yes. all of them? Yes. So I started working at Pi right as One of Us was done. Mm. And actually the first session that I assisted on, which, which ended up me getting the assistant job at Pi, Joan wanted to record the vocals different for the video. There's some stuff that she did on the record that she didn't like. So the song that they used for the video is a different vocal performance for one of us. The assistant, I think, dropped a very expensive mic at Pi. A week later, Perry had found the dented mic and called me into the studio and was like, we're sorry, we can't use you anymore, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you dropped a U47 and we found it and you tried to hide it. And I was like, uh, nothing for nothing, but I don't know what a U47 is. And he went into the mic closet, grabbed it. And I was like, I've never seen that mic before. I'm sorry. And he <laughs> believed me, called the assistant and he was like, this guy named Nick was like, hey, what happened to this mic on this date? And he goes, well, I dropped it. It's old anyway. And he goes, Ugh. Nick, lose my phone number. Congratulations, you played yourself. Nothing for you. So as they say in Canada, peace out. Hung up and came to me and goes, you need to learn the room because you're the new assistant. Oh, we are so happy. We do the dance of joy. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay. Just ignorantly honest is I got my job and that was that John Osborne thing. But anyway, so I thought it would be a funny idea if we recorded time after time at the guy who wrote the song with Cindy, with the engineer who recorded the original song. And it was great because like, you know, Whitman is a bass player and and sat and, and you know, grabbed the bass from my bass player and was like, you know, I always heard this this way and played the bass on the three years old cover. I mean, that's Whitman playing bass, not. And he, you know, legitimately had a good idea in 1984 or whatever to play a bass part, but they went with another kind of part. Mm -hmm. So he got to play the bass he wanted on was the three years old cover. And Cindy heard, heard our cover and loved it. I always said I sound like drunk karaoke on that song, but she loved it. And, you know, and, 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 and because I worked so closely with Whitman, Whitman was, was her touring bass player because he loves playing live, spent a lot of time playing live in different bands and stuff like that. But when Cindy was looking to tour, I guess sometime in the 90s, Whitman started playing with her and became her musical director, which is, if anyone does know, a musical director of a touring band is like the person who makes sure the song structures are right, make sure that everyone's playing the right parts, like making, you know, make sure all that stuff and, and works with the artist to make sure that whatever tour they're on and all that stuff like that is, is taken care of. So that's what Whitman did for her. And Whitman worked on most of her records through the 90s. And I was assistant on a lot of those records. I did a little bit of engineering. I met Cindy the first time when I was in Clockwise. And after a couple of weeks of working with her, Bill was like, oh, George is in a hardcore band. And, and she sat and listened to all, you know, the whole Clockwise EP with me in the studio with her. It was a very surreal moment. And then ever since then was like, oh, I love what you're doing. Like she understood I wasn't really a singer. But like I sang on five of her songs through the years, one of them being a Christmas record. And I think two Christmases ago, we were in Costco, me and my wife. And I was like, oh, that's me in the chorus. And, you know, she picked out my voice singing on the chorus of a Christmas song, whatever song it was on a Cindy Lauper record. That it was is like a fun, cool. kind of fun thing, like, you know, fun story like that. That's why we did Time After Time. And also Time After Time is a fucking great song. It is. <laughs> I mean, such a good song. You can't listen to that song without getting choked up. And to me, those are always like the best songs because, you know, it, it gets you right here. Yeah. And 
I love and respect the shit out of Cindy Lauper. She was from Queens, so I felt a kinship with her music because, you know, I grew up in Queens as well. And yeah. also she had Captain Lou Albano in her music videos, and we grew up wrestling fans in my family. So that was uh, <laughs> a positive notch in her, in her hat for us. So The first night I'm working with her, mm -hmm. really late, she had a deadline. Um, I forgot what record it was for, but it was like, you know, it was like a, like a 20 hour session you know, four o'clock in the morning. I had like an eyebrow ring and she's like, you know, she's trying to figure me out the whole night. So then we're sitting, I'm doing some tape playback for her. Um, Whitman's like resting his ears and we're just going over some stuff. And, and she looks at me, she goes, Oh, she goes, that eyebrow piercing. She goes, that hurt. And I was like, no, I don't know. It just was like a pinch for a second. I had like a little eyebrow ring. Mm -hmm. She goes, you know, my friend used to pierce pierce with the gun through his face and i was like oh man i was like that sounds painful and she goes oh you probably know him captain lou albano <laughs> and i was like literally like flashbacks to when i was like eight years old watching oh all that God. shit go down and like the, you know the wwf <laughs> never never Federation. Under never understood the rubber bands through the face but i mean that was captain lou in a nutshell she but, just thought that it, it you know, there was a he, he, you know, she was like, Oh, he was crazy, but I loved him. Blah blah. blah. She, you know, told me some stories about it, and I was like, It was, you know, it was crazy. And then, you know, was there a difference between Cindy the artist and Cindy the person? I would say on so many levels, but you know, I think coming from like a punk background that I come from, and then she could relate to me on that, and also like how comfortable me and Bill got with each other hundreds of hours in the studio with just the, with just the three of us i definitely got to see a side of cindy that maybe not everyone gets to see but i don't think it was that different i mean you know she she definitely speaks her mind and all that stuff she's she's you know it's it's not like there's an evil person sitting no you know, no i wasn't insinuating yeah. that at all i'm just saying like i i i, I do think she is way more talented than what you see on her records and, and, you know, there's proof of that, just being in the studio with her. She did this amazing thing one night that was like, you know, it was like a little bit of a vocal vamp. And, you know, she did it and went off and stepped away from the microphone and really kind of controlled the way her voice sounded in the room to the mic that was there to her headphones and did this whole crazy thing that we're all like floored by. Mm -hmm. Comes in, she's like, yeah, I want to listen to that. You listen to it. And she goes, that's too much. My audience isn't ready for that. Walks back into the room and does this same exact thing, just 40% less. And that's the take she used. I was like, I've never seen anyone have that much control of the environment, their voice, any of that stuff, and make it sound sincere. It was crazy. Damn. She's actually, she sings on that Largo record that I talked about earlier. And she does yodeling at the end of one of the songs on it. The project is called Largo, and it just had tons of artists on it. It's the 100-year celebration of the song Largo. And it's just all songs about coming to America. It's fucking great. The Chieftains are on it. Taj Mahal plays on it. Levon Helen's on it. Like, it's a mm. fucking sick record. And it did nothing. The label went out of business when it came out. And they spent a year on the record. It's crazy. <sighs> Is Cindy someone you still talk with today or? Um, you know, I ran into her. Like I was at work. It was like three or four years ago. I ran into her at the coffee shop at work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Cindy. And she went, ugh. <laughs> and then I was like, it's George. And she goes, holy shit. And it gave me a big hug. And we sat and caught up and all that stuff like that. But it's, That's not, cool. someone that it's not someone that I'm texting and like emailing and getting in touch with, you know. Every once in a while, she's playing. I want to see Bill. Like, I'll be like, hey, Bill, get me tickets. And, you know, I'll get tickets and go. There was one night, this is, this is, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, where she found out that I was coming and she wanted me to sing on one of the songs I sang on the record. So Whitman was like, if you don't want to sing tonight, hide until Shine is played. So I was like, all right. So, like, I avoided her until after the song that she wanted me to sing on. Because she saw my name on the list. And she was like, I want to get Georgia. So I hid in the front of house. And then during one of her songs, she runs around. And all I hear is George. And I look up and she's like over the front of house board pointing and basically yelling at me on the microphone in the middle of one of her songs. And I was like, 
oh cindy and then after that she's like whitman told you i was looking for you right and i was like yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm in a video with her a money changes everything acoustic video with her and I got Adam from Taking Back Sunday to do Money Changes Everything. There's a record she put out. It's a great sounding record called The Body Acoustic. It's all mm-hmm. of her songs kind of acoustic. Whitman recorded it. It's fucking great, that record. I'll and definitely I'm, check that out. I'm in a video that you can find on YouTube, clapping along, and I, and I sing a little bit of yeah, 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 isn't it? Nice. Okay. So, yeah, it's my life with Cindy. So we got one of the more positive experiences you have. So I'm sorry, I have to bring it up. <laughs> Why are we laughing? A certain progressive metal band out of Long Island, because you told me the horror stories with that once. Oh, that was that, you know. Can we say the name of the band? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to, you know, that that comes down to my musical taste and I just wasn't really that into it. And the band is Dream Theater. Okay, he and, said um, it. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, Dream Theater is a very talented band. Definitely can't take that away and from them because they're so talented and they're a musicians band. That you know, some of them had some ego problems, and I knew that going in. And and I was the chief engineer at the studio, and and they booked Pi out for six weeks, and I you know had a bunch of indie projects that I could do on the side and. And just hired a, another engineer to work the project. Was <laughs> and, the and, and and spent a little bit of time in the studio with them, and and there were actually two of the members were extremely nice, mm-hmm. and I and I like spending time with them and talking shop and stuff like that. But you know, the album was eighty minutes long, and it was six songs or something like that. You know, I I want to piggyback actually on something you mentioned before because you were talking about like when you would look in the back of magazines to find out like engineering schools. I think I remember at the time in like the late 80s, uh, early 90s, there was the Musicians Institute of Technology. I think there was one of the big ones in California. Yeah. I remember seeing advertisements for and for them in like Guitar World and Bass Player Magazine. And I think even maybe some of the metal mags like Hit Parader and Circus. I could yeah. be completely wrong about that. There was, there was that. There was SI... SIR Studios? No, that's, that's the rental place. Who my nephew works for um it was some or st or a a r i it was like uh audio institute audio recording institute i think audio recording institute a r i so my friend juan went there and you know that was a good program that was new york city um and then you know there was some four-year programs at state schools there was like uh there was one upstate that was like a lot of great engineers came out of that program well, you had to like play an instrument to get in. I wasn't that good at any of that stuff. And it was expensive. So Nassau Community College for me. Nothing um, wrong with that. Hey, look, if, if my daughter tells me she wants to go to community college for two years to wet her beak in something and see if she likes it or not, I'd be like, hey, better spending it at a community college than dropping tons of dollars on a university or yeah. anything well, like that, you know, especially for something that you, you're not sure if you want to do. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing. It's like, the, you know, the 20% I learned, and it's basically like how the ear works, how sound waves work, what's a low frequency, what's a high frequency, <laughs> like, you know, basic stuff, a little bit of tape editing, no real music production, just like, this is what a dynamic, this is how a dynamic mic works. This is the, how a condenser mic works. This is how a ribbon mic works. Like, this is what a mic pre does, but, but no real influence of like, a Neve mic pre is better than an SSL mic pre because of these elements. Like none of that stuff, just, just basic fundamentals of engineering. You also learn music theory and music business was a course that we had. Mm-hmm. He, he put together a good program. Kevin Kelly put together a really good program. Um, it's still going on. He's not the, he's not the head, head of it anymore, but uh, it's still going on. Nassau Community College. Um, so, so, but if I didn't learn that stuff, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to learn the stuff that I learned you know, in the real world working in school. One of the great things about Pi was it, it, it was such a fancy, expensive studio that I, I hardly engineered, but like I was working with all the top engineers and producers at the time. You know, like the Joan Osborne record was the biggest record in, in 94 or 95 or whatever. I mean, it was a huge record. I got to work with that team that made that record, you know, on three more records over the next four years. So like just just being a fly on the wall for like how records got made, I think, you know, help helped me 
engineering and all that stuff. And then I lived in this weird world where I had like one foot in this super major label, high echelon studio where I was only working with major labels. I was on the phone with these people, like getting tape sent and doing all this different stuff. And then on the other side of it, I was going to hardcore shows and I was like in a hardcore band where I was like playing in front of 30 people and was like totally psychic. We'd show up in Pennsylvania and play a basement. It was like my favorite thing in the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to play in front of 30 people in a shitty basement. You know, we're like, we're getting electrocuted, you know, and then, and then I, and then I'd go to work and I'd work with someone who like already had, you know, a couple of hit records and all that stuff and, and just living in that world. And, and, you know, I lived in this both sides of it. And it's like, it, that's, you know, was me like the dichotomy of, of Georgia just made sense. So I never thought to make my, I never thought to record hardcore bands or punk. Mm -hmm. I just was like, oh, this is my career and this is my life. Like I'm a hardcore kid. And then sort of started to meld them together. And, and that's when I, you know, kind of was like, I'm not going to make money off the hardcore scene. I never wanted to make money off the hardcore scene or punk, but I could own a small size studio and record all day long, you know, and, and get by. And that's kind of what's, what had me move, move towards opening general studios. And I remember recording with you when I think your studio was based in West Babylon first. Yeah. And, yeah. And you shared uh, the same building, The Sleeping, November Kills. Yeah. My and, <laughs> and yes, they were your neighbors in, in, yeah. in separate rooms. I think even Doug slept in the studio. Yeah, yeah. I lived in that studio for a couple of weeks too, you know. I just remember the tracking for my wife's CD, Beneath the Curtain, and just feeling like it was the most comfortable environment. We weren't on a time budget but money was i guess the one factor because we wanted to make sure that we didn't waste your time yeah and we wanted to make sure that whatever we did were the best performances and the way you just had it set up over the course of a couple of years because you know we would come to you when we had the money to pay you were like hey george we got some money let's let's do it and, and you know and you, I was were, you were to, I was very helpful to guys up too yeah mm -hmm. just, you know i liked working with you and i liked the record and I think towards the end of that record, we were all striving for something better than the budget. Yeah. And I think I was beyond happy with it. Like, you know, I don't know if you could tell there's a box up on the China cabinet. That's a box of Aaron's albums. We didn't get to sell uh. all of them. <laughs> because at that point, you know, people stopped buying CDs and they were only yeah. about the streaming. At the time that we had on there, Aaron and I still talk about it as like one of the best periods of our lives. But there was an unfortunate incident that happened at your studio, and that's the building burned down, correct? The place in West Babylon. And then you ended up moving to Douglaston, New York, which is right by the Douglaston train station. Yeah. And when you got it, Aaron and I, we were just so happy for you. We were like, oh my God, George has his own studio now. But we didn't realize that for you to be able to maintain it, you had to constantly keep working. For everyone that doesn't understand, you know, we, we were in a monthly rehearsal building and I, and I shared a monthly rehearsal room with my band three years older. So they paid half the rent or they paid almost half the rent. And then I covered the rest of the rent with my small recording studio. Um, and, and that studio was only meant to do overdubs in. Like I, you know, I kind of thought like I would track drums at Pi or another studio and then bring it back there and do vocals and, and guitar and, you know, tambourine or whatever, you know, get you know, the keyboards or whatever. And, you know, and I made a couple of records like that there. And then a good friend of mine, um, Rick was like, Oh, let's, let's open our own studio. And the idea was to like open up like a couple of monthly rooms and with, with like a, a, a nicer, you know, recording studio in it. Somebody informed me that, Douglaston, the studio that has been there since the late 70s, was for sale. Mm -hmm. And it was an installation price. And that's basically like you buy the walls, you buy some of the equipment that they have, and you just move in. It's like a hermit crab, you know. And I loved that studio. And then it worked into the budget. There was like a bidding war. We got in there. Actually, the bidding war didn't last long because the guy met me and then the people who were bidding against me and was like, I want to give you the studio we got in there and then one night you know i i lined up all these sessions at the smaller studio because i said hey my prices are going to go up a little bit um i'm going to be at the smaller studio for about a month and a half until until we move into this to the, this bigger facility but you know things will sound better and whatever and then we're we're there one night and I'm, I'm mixing i was trying to mix a band called gracer i got headphones on because 
my band who was would wanted to practice and i was like i can't i gotta finish these mixing so they were writing in the room next door they borrowed the sleeping room to like write in and they were playing in there for a little bit and then i get a i get a tap on the shoulder that there's a ton of smoke in the hallway and i you know i got headphones on <laughs> oh no and someone taps me on the shoulder and goes i think the building's on fire and oh, i take the, the headphones of off and the alarm's going and i'm like fuck uh-huh. and i go and i look at this door and there's just smoke built so there's about a 10 foot hallway and directly across from my room there's a door and there's smoke billowing out of the every part of this door and i'm like call the fire department mm-hmm. you know so they call the fire department um me and one of the guitarists from rich from, from three years old start going around the building to get everyone out we're banging on doors it's a rehearsal room so like there's tons of people there's, there's 14 rooms in there so we're, we're getting everyone out banging on doors everyone's gotta get out blah, blah, blah. so i go back in my room and i see the smoke and i'm like i gotta get shit out of this room so i unplug my computer i didn't even turn it off the mix was still printing oh God. i unplugged my computer when i turned it on a couple of weeks later i saw where i unplugged like the session safe like this you know session file back or whatever like you know the song was half recorded or whatever i had like a lamp that i had for my family in that studio that's the first thing i took out it's the last lamp put that in my car and then i just slowly made a bunch of trips one of the so i'd go in my room i close the door there's no smoke one of the trips i put i poured water on a shirt i was wearing and put that over my nose so i wasn't you know breathing in smoke you know and i went in six times to get ear out you know Mm -hmm. got a bunch of guitars took out a bunch of hard drives and you know took the computer out took you know took everything out um i'm and, just glad you survived it <laughs> well you know i talked to a firefighter about it about running into a burning building it was, it's not so bad <laughs> oh, he's God. like as long as you're protecting and you're not you know, over breathing or doing anything you're bad and i was like yeah you know it's like if you're cool and collective it's not so bad so then the cops show up they're the first ones on the scene mm-hmm. and they go what is this place and then i explained to him it's a rehearsal room he goes is everyone out and i was like we did one sweep already let's go back in so then i brought them back in so I went back in actually a sixth time and then walked them through the building and made sure that everyone was out again. Everyone was out, showed them what the exits were, showed them what everything was. And then the fire department showed up and started putting out fire, which caused a lot of water to come in my room. So then I snuck back in to see what the water damage was like in my room and started lifting drum sets and all that stuff like that up on a couch and amps and everything. So I didn't have that affected. And, and you know, the fire department breaks every window and every door. Right. So I knew to leave my door unlocked. So they kicked my door open and nothing happened to it. So then we sat there till about five o'clock in the morning until they left. And I went in locked up. There was no electricity for alarm, but, you know, took out more stuff and then, uh, and then went home, but I had no money. Like I, you know, I was supposed to make a, a, a you know, a month's worth of recording sessions to move into this new studio. Mm-hmm. So then the next morning we went and signed the lease on Douglaston. <laughs> <laughs> so and, it was like poetic but i was broke you know and then i'm like trying to get douglason up and wiring and you know spending money doing all this stuff and it, it just was it just i started douglason behind the eight ball like i just didn't have you know the thousand bucks that i needed to like get stuff done and it, it was rough and then that's just started like you know i lost my apartment while I was in Douglaston and I lived on the couch and at Douglaston for about two years, I joined the 24 hour gym so I could leave. So I would leave with clients like at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, I'd be like, all right, see you later. And I'd lock up, I'd get my car, I'd go to the gym, I'd work out and take a shower, come back and set my bed up on the couch and sleep on the couch in the back. I did not and know then, he was doing this, by the way. When I found then, out, um, I was ready to let him move in with me. If, <laughs> if I had known you could have moved in with me rent free, dude, I would have been like, no. Because I was then, living um, in Babel at the time. I had an apartment. Yeah, yeah, and I was just like, George, I would have let you crash on my couch. You and, could have had a home know, access to the fridge. I, you know, and then, and then, uh, you know, the next morning, clean up and, you know, hey, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And you record a whole day and just do that process over and over. <laughs> And and Aaron and I, we were saying to ourselves, wow, George is doing great for himself. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, just just to keep the lights on. I mean, our, with the loan payment, like the investor that got us in there, we didn't want to default on that. And then, uh, you know, to, we signed a five-year lease with this wonderful woman who wanted music in her, 
who wanted music in her building. She mm-hmm. owned that building since the seventies, and you know she loved that there was a studio there, and we paid enough rent that was that was fair enough for her. Something would break, she'd like just get it fixed, get attach the bill, pay me less next month. Like it was a leak happened, she would come and get someone to fix the leak. It was great. She sold the building to these people that thought they could knock the building down and build twenty four apartments. Oh God! About two, about two and a half years into the lease, so. What happened was these people came in and literally like was like, "Hey, we own the building. We don't want you here." It's the conversation I had with these people, like, "Oh, we're going to raise your rent as much as we can, as fast as we can." So then, you know, we lawyered up. We got we did all the stuff. We fought them for about two years, and then it just was like they're never going to resign the lease with us. Um, you know, there's people measuring. We had a leak they never fixed, ruined the base amp. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's tons of that stuff that we just fought, fought, fought. And then, you know, by the end of it, it just wasn't worth it. So, thanks for watching part two of my interview with George Fullen. We're going to wrap it up soon with part three, which will be up very soon. It'll probably be up by the time you actually watch this episode. I want to thank George again for being my special guest. Just want to remind everyone of the good name of Rat Style Review Network. Please like and subscribe on YouTube to Ratzel Review, and again, on all available streaming media platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora. <laughs> Just want to give a quick shout out to the fellow podcasts on the network, such as Beyond Bushido with James and Eric Adams, Suck My Balls, the South Park. I feel so weird saying that name every time, but it is one of the uh, best podcasts out there. Definitely the best on South Park. Also to The Right Opinion, big shout out to my co-hosts on Rad Side Review, Wayne and Greg. Also to Ralph Vieira over at Vieira Vault, who just recently reunited with Ian Wadley for the Rock and Metal Combat podcast. Welcome back, guys. Also a shout out to Decibel Geek, Chris and Aaron. That's a podcast that you should definitely check out for all fans of hard rock and heavy metal from all decades. It's late. I'm tired. Editing takes a while. And you guys have a good night. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music Aside podcast brought to you by Anchor.fm and Ratsad Review. Check out the other shows on Ratsad Review, including Beyond Bushido, Old Man Metals Musings, The Right Opinion, The Vieira Vault, the Timo Toki Podcast, the BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, and the Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie. Graphics by Rocky Baia. For commissions, find them on Twitter at R-O-C-K-Y-B-A-I-A. Intro and outro music for the show is Lose Control by The Rebel Medium, written by Jacqueline Guitard, Ernest Leyuk, and Lou Mavs. If you'd like to donate to the channel, please donate to our PayPal at musicislifepodcast at gmail.com. If you're in a band and you want us to review your music, then contact us at Maps at musicislifepodcast.com. Special thanks to Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle. With much love and gratitude to Aaron, Anna, and Aloysius. For more information, check out www.musicislifepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out www.ratsireview.com. Remember, all art is valid. Thanks for listening. Cheers.